Thank you, Father, for so many blessings. Thank you for the privilege that it is to even come before you in prayer. I confess, Father, that so often in my week, I'll put you aside. I'll return to the busyness of a life and a world that does not know you, and and I often fall into the trap of following their model. Even as a man of faith, Father, we we can find ourselves living as if we were no different than the rest of the world. But I thank you, Father, that even in those moments in which I forget that you are there, you never forget us, you never go away, and you never cease in working, working your plan in the world and through us and around us and according to your word. And then, Father, when our hearts have strayed too far, you are kind to bring us back and remind us of your presence and convict us of our sin and to draw us again back to a study and to a following of you and your word. And this morning, Father, is one more opportunity for that resetting and refocusing. We study, Father, a story written long ago about events even longer in the past. But, Father, so often is the case in your word, the message is absolutely relevant and contemporary. For although things seem to change, they have always remained the same. And in these lessons of everyday life, Father, found in the lives of men from long ago, I pray, Father, you would convict us and teach us and guide us into all righteousness according to your word. And let this be the work that you have for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember last week in chapter 6, we studied the reasons for the flood. That's how Moses introduces the story of Noah. And now we're ready to move into the flood story proper into what happens and why and how. And it begins, as you might know, with a man. It begins with the man of Noah. And so where we begin today in chapter 6, verse 8 and on, is the introduction of sorts. Who is this man and why is he involved and how is the story going to play out through his life? So begin with me in chapter 6. We'll read verses 8 through 12 as we open today. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Well, Noah begins this story much as he began the chapter. In fact, he talks about an earth filled with sinful men, each left to his own conscience in order to choose right from wrong. And of course, (laughs) that conscience failed them, as it does us in most cases. If you remember, we said this opening section of Genesis sets the scene by reminding us that as the world itself moved out of the time of the garden into the times that followed, God left men with nothing to control their sinfulness except their own conscience. That's why some have called this period of history the dispensation of conscience or the manner of conscience. God did not provide his law yet. He has not provided government yet. He's not provided many of the things which today act as governors on sin. Instead, he left it to man's own conscience and nature. And that resulted in the utter and complete depravity of the world. Utter and complete violence, utter and complete wickedness, as Scripture testifies here. Even as we saw last week, even the demon realm has crossed the line. 
and in so doing has created an imminent need for God to act, an emergency, if you will. God said last week he regretted that the work of his creation had come to this, to this outcome. And so he contemplates the world's condition, and as he does so, how to respond. And in the midst of all this, we're told one man gains God's approval. One man, Noah. Noah, it says, finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, the word Noah means rest. And interestingly, in the Hebrew, when you spell his name backwards, it means grace. And that's what we're hearing said here in verse 8. Noah finds favor. The word in Hebrew for favor is chen, C-H-E-N, transliterated. It simply is the word for grace. Everywhere that word is used in the Old Testament, chen, it is the word for grace. It's the Hebrew word for grace. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, we know, is is from the line of Seth, the son of Adam, who is the seed line. And I won't repeat all of the teaching we've done on this already. I'll just remind you that there is one line, one genealogy out of Adam through whom God has purpose to act out his promise of bringing a correction, a Messiah, a solution for the sin of the world. And he selected Seth as that line and through Seth, certain sons down the row all the way until you reach Noah. Noah is that continuing man in the line of the seed whom God is using to bring about his promises. This man is knowing and following the Lord. But that is something only God makes possible by his grace. And here you see God taking that step again, intervening into the normal course of man's life of sinful men bringing faith to the man's heart so that he might receive God's grace. And once that grace is rested on Noah, look what follows. There's an interesting uh, progression here from verses 8 till 9. It's purposeful, it's orderly, and you have to understand it properly or you might miss the point. In verse 9, Noah is called a righteous man. The Hebrew word for righteous means the man who is in keeping with God's ways, without condemnation from God. Then Noah next, in verse 9, is said to be blameless in his time. And the word in Hebrew for blameless means without blemish, or it can mean with integrity, or upright. We're not talking here about a perfect person. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. Blameless means godly. It means someone who is working out his salvation. He walks with God is the last thing we hear. He walks with God, a man who knows and follows the living God. Look at the progression now across those statements. Make sure you notice in the description. First, Noah finds favor. He finds grace. Secondly, he is declared righteous. Thirdly, he leads a godly life following the Lord. This is the pattern for all men who follow the Lord. This is the only way it's ever been done. Old Testament, New Testament, take your pick. There's only one way to heaven. Only one way to be in God's good favor. Only one way to be called a child of God. This is it. Noah did it the same way Abraham does it, the same way Jesus said it must be done the same way Paul did it, the same way we do it. There's only one way. It begins with God, assigning grace, finding favor. Hebrews says this in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Noah, like all men, gained God's approval by faith, not by his performance. That's why the gospel translated properly means good news. Folks, it is eternally good news to discover by God's authority 
that it is not a matter of our performance or works that brings us into good standing with God. It is rather only by God's approval of us apart from our works. His appointing of grace, his decision that he would overlook our sin and assign us his favor. And by that assignment, we gain righteousness by faith. Folks, that's great news. What I can't do, he makes available for me without any need for me to try to achieve it. It's terrible news, on the other hand, to suggest that you must, by your own efforts, become good enough to enter into God's presence. What a horrible thing to hear if you know yourself honestly. For you instinctively know, I can't measure up. But Noah, apart from all those in the world who were following their sin nature, finds God's favor. God's favor, his grace comes upon this man. Now, why is Noah in this position? Noah found favor and found grace for God's own glory, for God's own namesake, for his own testimony. For if God were not to assign his grace to someone, then the seed would end and the promise would be nullified and God's word would have been nullified. He cannot not keep his word. You may remember that Noah was the tenth in the line from Adam in the generations that we accounted in, in chapter 5. And numbers have meaning in the Bible. They're often symbolically meaningful. The number 10 is typically used in Scripture as a symbol of testimony, of witness, in the positive sense, giving testimony or giving witness to God's greatness or to his glory or to his promise-keeping nature. So nine, in contrast to ten, is a number that represents judgment in Scripture. When you see nines used, it's traditionally a number assigned to judgment, to God's wrath against sin. So the generations before Noah, up through generation nine, are wiped out by this event, this coming flood. But Noah's family, the tenth generation, will live on through the flood as testimony to God's grace. Now Moses takes a moment here to list Noah's sons because his sons are born before the flood. And he singles out Noah and now his family here to make a point. And here we need to now understand what he's doing so that we can broaden our own conversation. Because up till now we've been talking about one man, Noah. But as you probably already know, he doesn't get in the boat alone now, does he? Well, we hear of Noah and now his three sons. We'll talk more about them as we see them disperse after the flood in chapter 9. So we'll put a long discussion of them aside for a moment. In the culture of this day, when this book was written, and certainly in the day in which these events took place, you listed men without listing wives because wives were, in a sense, assigned to men, assumed to be part of the man's family, and therefore they were implied in the list. So when you list four men, Noah and his three sons, you're also, by definition, listing four women, even if their names don't appear in the record. So there are eight people here implied when you see these four names listed. And we know from the New Testament commentary in Peter's letters, for example, concerning the flood, that he talks about eight people entering the flood. He's referring, of course, to the men and their wives. So from this point forward, now we have to start thinking not only in terms of one man, but in terms of eight, a family who are being called into this situation. Eight people in the genealogy of Noah. Look at the contrast God has set up in those verses I've read. He has discussed a completely depraved, violent society with no redeeming qualities who have not found God's favor. And then he has listed eight who have found his favor. Notice the language in verses 11 and 12. It's complete. It's total. He says the world is 
completely violent, completely corrupt, without exception, filled with violence. In other words, he's making clear to you and I, there is no corner somewhere in which someone is doing a good thing. There's no little alleyway in which some person has managed to escape the corrupt nature of the world and is worthy by their own right, their own sake, to be considered protected through this flood. There is no one who does good, no, not one. They have all gone astray. Let's put it in simple terms. You have a world in which there are only eight believers. You have a world in which there are only eight people whom God has chosen to place grace into their life and call them into faith so that they would respond in faith to his word. And by that faith, they are declared righteous. And by that status of child of God, faithful follower of the living God, they will be given a provision, a way of protecting them in the course of this coming judgment. But the rest of the world is outside that sphere. It is only God's favor that has separated Noah's family from the rest of what is happening in the world. So having introduced Noah and his family and explained why Noah will escape the flood, we now hear God's commissioning to Noah for what must follow. Verse 13. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So now Noah receives this famous call to build an ark. If you're like me and you grew up with uh, Bill Cosby, you're probably hearing the Bill Cosby bit right about now. God first gives Noah the reason for this really extraordinary set of instructions. He says, the end of all flesh has come. Now, what God has just done is he's turned on a clock. Do you remember back at the beginning of this chapter, God said that his spirit will not strive with men forever. And so he set a limit to the life of flesh on earth of 120 years. That was a reference to how long before God was going to end the current state of worldwide corruption among flesh. With this announcement, he starts the clock. From this point, there are now 120 years before the flood arrives. And in this period, God is going to give Noah time to prepare an ark, collect food, collect the animals, and eventually enter into the ark before the flood arrives. Now, we can see the point of the delay here. Obviously, God has to give time for all this preparation to take place. If he had announced earlier on that, oh, I see all that's happening on the earth, it's time that I bring an end to all this violence, I'm going to bring the flood in about 30 days. Well, there would have been no hope for anyone. There was no practical way in which Noah could have done anything to protect himself with that little advance notice. So the delay is an opportunity for those who will escape the flood to be prepared for it. The story of Noah and the flood is a shadow. It is literal truth. It is historical fact. And there are many ways in which we can examine it from that point of view. And I will as we go through the course of this study. But it is also a, an event that God orchestrated in such a way that the details of this event shadow or foreshadow another event, a coming event. And by learning what these details are and how they relate, we can gain insight into a coming judgment that has also been promised in a future date. Here we see one of those shadows. Let me show you what I mean. The shadow is actually explained in the New Testament by Peter in his second letter. Second Peter chapter 3, 
verse 3, Peter says this. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter says that those who would ignore the signs of a coming judgment are forgetting something. They're forgetting the lesson of Noah, of Noah's day. And honestly, he's being kind when he says forget. What he really means is they fail to accept the truth of it. They've heard of the story of Noah, but they've dismissed it as myth. And in that dismissal, They are fooling themselves concerning a future judgment. He says God is not slow about keeping his promise. Which promise is he talking about? Well, the promise of Christ's return. But there is with that promise a corollary. Jesus' return is also the moment of the judgment of the earth, of those who are on the earth at that point. He said himself, I did not come in his first case to judge. He came to save, to preach the gospel. But the implication was when I come again, the purpose is different. The second time I come, it's to judge. And so take advantage of this window of opportunity. That's the point. Peter says, when we suggest that God is slow in keeping his promise to return and judge the world, we forget about Noah. You see, Noah was a situation much like today. Men run amok in their own sin. God knowing it and watching it and determined to judge sin as it must be judged. And he has declared there is an end, and that end is coming. But he's waiting. In Noah's day, God waited because had he come right away, there would not have been time for Noah to build an ark and save himself and his family, the righteous, in other words, preserved from the day of judgment. In our day, God is similarly waiting. He could come today, he could come tomorrow, he could have come a thousand years ago, and in each case he would have been right to do so, but he is being patient because... There are those in the family of God, those who will be called by favor, by grace, into a relationship, who must not be lost in the course of that judgment. They can't be swept over by God's judgment waters when the day comes, because that wouldn't be right. God has said in in the New Testament, uh, Peter says, God knows how to preserve the righteous even as he brings about judgment for the unrighteous. So he is waiting right now. We are living out a period of time that is similar to the 120 years that Noah got to live out while he prepared his ark. So if we're living in this period of waiting like Noah did, what's being built for us right now? What is it that we're waiting on? In Noah's day, the wait was so a boat could be built. In our day, Peter gives us the answer for what it is we're waiting on here. Peter says in chapter 3 of his second letter, verse 9, He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here's his answer, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Who is this all that he's waiting on? 
Who are the all that he needs to have repentance from and faith from so that he can then bring the judgment that comes upon the rest of the world? Well, by definition, the all are all who will come. It's all he has foreknown from the beginning of time. It's all those people that when God looked down the corridors of history in the plan of his church and he understood that Steve would be born in 1966 and Steve would come to faith in the mid 90s. And if I bring the Lord back in 1965, well, Steve isn't going to be part of those in my family. Or if I bring the Lord back in 1968 or 1972 or 1975 before Steve has come to faith, I will have left those who I intend to bring into faith behind. And he says, I cannot have that for all who are going to come into repentance must first be mine before I bring back the judgment. Just as in Noah's day, there had to be a boat ready for the eight to walk in before he could bring the judgment that was coming. And so he waited until the boat was ready. And today he's waiting until the last one appointed to faith comes to believe. And then you can be sure judgment will follow. But see, here's the trick. In Noah's day, no one else but Noah knew that it was going to be at 120 years. All they knew is they watched Noah build this strange boat in the back of his house, wherever he built it, was that he was doing something crazy. And meanwhile, we know that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Noah was out, I'm sure, explaining his purpose and relating to others why this boat was necessary. And as he does this year after year after year for better than a 100 years, People had opportunity to hear the message and accept what they were hearing or not. Sooner or later, that window closed and it was too late. And Peter says today, those who count God as slow and implying he's not faithful to his promise are simply like those in Noah's day who didn't realize that this patience was their opportunity. But sooner or later, time's up. God says all flesh must come to an end. But he makes a provision for those who he calls into faith. What was the provision in Noah's day? Well, it was a boat. Or an ark, specifically. An ark. What will it be in our day? Well, we've already said there's a parallel between the ark and Christ. We live in Christ, and Christ is our salvation from the judgment. In their day, it was the ark. They entered into the ark, and they were saved from the judgment. The ark itself, then, is a picture of Christ pointing to him as our Savior. Let's look at what the decree itself now provides. God says, all flesh must come to an end. Flesh here refers to all living creatures, all those creatures who earlier, as we studied the creation story, received the breath of life. A simple way to say it is land animals and man. God says he's going to destroy both. And did you notice he also says the earth itself? He said he was going to destroy the earth. Now, you might ask, first of all, why are the animals caught up in this? Poor things. Why do the animals have to go through this same experience? Well, remember, all the earth was placed under the same curse when men sinned. God declared that the earth itself would eventually have to be replaced because of man's sin. And that curse, since it was applied to the earth itself, transferred to anything that comes from the earth. It's all part of the same. So men themselves, our bodies, came in coming out of the dust of the ground, the earth, as God used it to create us originally. That meant that as God cursed the earth, we, our bodies, our physical bodies now, are cursed with a death sentence. But remember in day six what was also created from the earth? All land animals, all birds were also created from the earth, we're told in chapter two. 
And so they also now are under that same curse. They are all suffering the effects of man's sin by God's decree. Here also, I would add, you see clear evidence that the animal kingdom is part of the earth because it was created for man's needs. I mean, look at how this is happening. Man, the men who are being destroyed are losing their animals with them. But the man and the family who are being preserved are taking their animals with them. In other words, the animals that survived are the ones that are associated with the righteous family. The animals that don't are the ones that are associated with the unrighteous. Animals are a, uh, are, are a part of creation made for man for our, perp, for our needs and our use, our companionship, all, the, all of those good benefits. God has assigned them that purpose in existence. If man goes away, their need to exist goes away. But then again, where man is being preserved, they need to be preserved, for they are there to serve man. And we have a custodial relationship that we must also take seriously and perform responsibly. Now, looking to the actual commissioning of Noah and the ark, he's told to construct an ark. Now, the word ark in Hebrew is very interesting. It doesn't mean boat. It literally means box, which, by the way, is a pretty accurate description of the, of the object itself when you look at it. But it doesn't mean boat. It means box. This word is very rare in the Hebrew. It's only used one other time in the entire New Test or Old Testament. It's used for the basket that holds Moses when he floats down the, the river as his mom gives him up for adoption in Egypt. It's, a, it's not really a word for boat. Now, why does God call it an ark and not a boat? Well, the simple answer is boats didn't exist. Think about it. No one had ever built one before. No one had ever needed one before. Where's all the land? It's all together. Remember, it was described that way as it's being constructed in God's beginning. All the land is in one place. All the water is in one place. It's one mega continent and the rest of the world is water. If you were to get on a boat, where are you going to go? You're just going to come right back to the same place. There's nowhere else to go. You don't need a boat to navigate and you don't need a boat to fish because what are people eating at this point in history? Plants. God has not yet opened the door for eating meat. That happens in chapter 9 of Genesis. So what do you need a boat for? Right? What is a boat? It's just a hole you throw money into, as they say. There's no... I mean, I don't mean to suggest people hadn't thought about getting out on the water. Maybe some had experimented with it. But the sheer need for the object hadn't arrived yet. So the prospect of men spending a lot of time in doing it hadn't arrived either. So what's God going to say to Noah? Build me a boat? He would have said, what's that? He probably said, what's an ark for that matter? But he still had no real concept of it until God started to measure it out and describe it. So God has told Noah, I want you to build this object. Here are the dimensions. Here's the shape or here's the general pattern. We must also, therefore, assume that because Noah has no pattern on which to build this by, no example probably in his mind, he must have received more detail in the process of construction over the course of these years than we see represented here in the text. This is simply the beginning the introduction of the plan. But somewhere along the way, somebody had to give Noah some of the basic construction knowledge that he probably lacked, even if he was a very talented woodworker. You know, building something like this for the first time would have taken some real knowledge that he probably lacked. Presumably, God provided that knowledge as he needed it along the way. Let's look at the dimensions for a minute, and let's talk just briefly about the practicality of what's being asked of here, asked of Noah. The ark is a pretty impressive object, pretty impressive ship. It would be 450 feet long. By these measurements, you're talking about something that's a football and a half, field and a half in length, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. It's as tall as a four-story building. With the three decks and the dimensions of Scripture, you have 100,000 square feet 
of storage space inside this, inside this object. That's a million cubic feet of interior storage room. That's equal to 800 railroad boxcars. Think about how much stuff you could put in 800 railroad boxcars. In appearance, it would have looked just like a big floating rectangular box, almost like a long coffin. It's almost impossible to capsize. Based on its dimensions, it can reach almost 90 degrees and still right itself. It is perfectly suited to remaining afloat in any kind of sea, any kind of water. It is not particularly good at going somewhere specifically. You couldn't steer this thing anywhere. But then again, that's not its purpose. It's just supposed to float for a while, and that it would do really well. We're also told it's made of gopher wood. That word gopher in the Hebrew, gopher. Which is to say we have no idea what this wood is. It's a word in Hebrew that we don't know anything about. So we have no understanding what wood is gopher wood to a Hebrew. So God gave it the name, but we don't know what it is. It's covered inside and out, we're told, by pitch, a tarry substance more than likely, waterproofing. But the word pitch in Hebrew is very interesting. It's the word kofer, and kofer in Hebrew is also translated atonement. Atonement, sacrificial atonement. Think about this for a minute. If the boat wasn't watertight, if you didn't have this pitch on it, then even after it began to float, eventually it's going to sink into those judgment waters, isn't it? It can't stand up on its own. The, the wood's going to get uh, uh, saturated with water. It's going to leak. You know, you've got something that looks like it's good enough to do the job, but in the course of the judgment, it's going to fail the test. When the judgment comes, we'll find out it wasn't capable of sustaining itself under those conditions. And similarly... The atonement of Christ, our ark, is what saves us from the judgment that comes. We're preserved by Christ's atonement. It's on His atonement, resting on His work, that we are able to make it through the coming judgment. And if we think we're going to make it through on our own merits, if we just trust that it'll all work out in the end, it's all just going to be good, certainly I'm not the kind of person God wants to put into hell, we're sort of like an ark without pitch, without atonement. It looks good. But only when you get on top of the waters will you find out that it wasn't good enough. This ark is again becoming a greater picture of Christ. Our atonement for our sin. What do you think is going through Noah's mind at about this point? He's heard about the need to preserve himself from this coming judgment. He's been given this very strange object to build. And as he starts to see the dimensions sink into his head, he realizes this is no ordinary box. This is the mother of all boxes. This is... This is the biggest box I can imagine. I've got to go build this thing? Why? Why do I need such a big boat? Verse 17, God says why. He says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two... Of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind. Of the animals after their kind. Of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself. It shall be food for you and for them. So here's God's explanation for why Noah gets this request. He's going to bring a flood of water on the earth to extinguish everything that breathes. Now, this clearly means that fish are not included in this judgment. Well, that only makes sense, right? We're giving them more water. That's not a big problem for fish. That's actually nice. So the fish, the sea creatures, they're not largely affected by this. Now, having said that, 
That does not mean that the, the force of all that happens, the, the movement of the earth, the breaking open of the earth's crust, the falling of the rain, all that we will read about in chapter 7. It is not to say that those events are not significant enough that they don't cause some collateral damage. They absolutely do. Uh, have you ever, as a kid, I remember seeing friends do this at summer camp. They take these really powerful firecrackers and they throw them in the water. And if you got lucky, they might stun a fish and the fish would float to the surface. And everyone laughed and thought that was a lot of fun. For teenage boys, this is what passes for great fun in the summertime, okay? Anyway, now you're all thinking, how's he going to work that into the sermon? Here's how it works. In the course of what we will see described in chapter 7, there is enough shock and awe. There's enough power in the force of what God is doing to disrupt the world. He, he splits continents apart. He creates, he, re, he remakes the face of the earth into the form we now know it. He puts mountains in place where they don't exist, they didn't exist before, and he creates valleys where they didn't exist before. He'll do a lot of very dramatic things, which we will study in chapter 7. In the course of all that, that shock in the water kills some, some sea creatures. They die in the course of all this upheaval. He doesn't extinguish them all. But enough of them die that when we look at the fossil record, which we know is a record of the flood, that's the the graphic evidence in the the geologic column of how all these creatures died under a wall of flood and and mud and and sediment, you also see sea creatures embedded in that record because some of them died in the course of the event. But what did not happen was sea creatures being extinguished. Only the land animals were extinguished in this time, those who have the breath of life. When Noah describes this event, he uses a unique Hebrew word for flood. It's only used here. And when this same event is described in the New Testament, there's a Greek word for flood used there that is also unique. In other words, what we're saying is there are floods and then there is this flood. And wherever this flood is being referenced in Scripture, whether Old or New Testament, there is a unique word used. In the Greek, it's cataclysmos, which is where we get the word cataclysm from. It refers to something so extraordinarily different It's not considered the same as normal floods. That fact, along with the instructions God has given Noah to build this boat, that all life would be extinguished, all of these details tell us that this is not a local flood. Those who would not accept the authority of Scripture and try to dismiss it have come to this story and dismissed it in a variety of ways, but in one way particularly, they say this could never have been a worldwide flood. Such things are impossible. It would have only been a local flood. And Noah's being told to prepare for a local flood. Folks, that doesn't make any sense. First of all, the words don't work. The word is talking about something different than a local flood. But then secondly, what he tells Noah to do would make no sense if it's a local flood. All the land is in one place. If I've got 120 years to be ready for a local flood, what's the thing I do? I move. I leave. I take me and my animals two at a time and we walk somewhere where there won't be this local flood, right? Why do I need a boat? It makes no sense especially one on this size. The point of the flood is it's going to affect the entire landmass. You have no choice but a boat. That's the only way to survive. This is a worldwide flood. How about an even harder question to ask? Why does God use a flood? I mean, if his point is to do away with all flesh, why didn't he just snap his fingers, so to speak? Everyone's dead, except for Noah and his family and some animals that he saves. It's a lot easier You don't have all the waiting, you don't have the boat, you don't have all the other stuff. You just get right to the point, right? Why wouldn't God do that? In fact, the Bible says that God actually has to be actively working to maintain life or all life would end. Colossians 1.17 says that all things are being held together by the power of Christ. 
that if it were, if God were to suddenly stop trying, so to speak, life would come to an end. He is the glue holding everything together and making all things survive and exist. So if God wanted to destroy the world, he just lets it happen. There are at least three reasons why he does it with a flood instead. First, the flood is giving us an opportunity to see these pictures and shadows of a future judgment. So God is using these events to orchestrate a play, if you will, a worldwide play in which we learn something about what is later to happen to the whole world in a permanent way. Secondly, the floodwaters are an effective mechanism to bury the carcasses of many dead men and animals. That's the geologic column that I referred to. Think about what Noah would be faced with if everyone just dropped dead where they were in a moment. It would be very, very difficult to deal with that. Mass burial is a better choice. And then thirdly, the forces that are required to create the flood, tear apart the world, refashion it, remake it in a new way, continents reshaped, climate will change, natural features like mountains and oceans will suddenly arise, and all of those changes become barriers, governors, These changes, along with others that we're going to study later, will support God's purpose in making it harder for sin to ever escalate out of control again. With some of these changes, he separates men. He puts natural barriers between them. He causes things to happen that will now create a new world in which sin is regulated to some extent just by the fact that the world now has been remade in this new way. So since this news is disturbing to Noah, Noah also gets some assurance that not all is lost. And in just the last minute here, let's recap what he gives to Noah in these instructions. He says, you are going to be preserved. This ark is for you. You're going to go into it and be preserved. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you, which we see happen in chapter 9. By the way, this is the first use of the word covenant in Scripture, though it is not the first time God has made a covenantal promise, but it's the first time we see it described as such. And as survivors in this flood, they will be God's provision for the future. And then he gets the most memorable, the most incredible part of the whole commission. He's told he has to bring along a menagerie of land creatures. He'll have a male and female version of every land animal God intends to preserve. Here's another point of critique. People say, oh, this story is so much nonsense. For example, how could he ever have gone out and been sure that he had two of every animal? How could he have even collected them, much less known for sure he had them all? Well, verse 20 tells us. God said the animals will come to him. How could Noah have gone out and found all those animals? I would tell you it would have been impossible, which is why God had to do it for him. Remember, all the land's in one place. All the animals are on the same piece of land. They can all reach there just by walking. Now, you may discredit the story of Noah on a question of how he would fit so many animals into the ark. That's another question. How could he possibly put all those animals in one boat? Well, here's where math is your, is your friend. Many people have grossly overestimated in their mind how many species or kinds of animals there really are. First, we know the world is filled with millions of animals. But remember, no fish, no plants, only land animals and birds and crawling creatures, which would include insects. Remember, even though insects are by far the largest category, they're also the smallest objects. You can put a whole lot of insects in a very small space. And the big animals, there's not that many of them in the taxonomy of animals. Secondly, remember what we learned in Genesis chapter 1. How did God create animals in their original form? By kinds, by bearmen. 
That is a word in the Hebrew that is a broad category of animal in which you see the capacity to diversify. So while today we have many varieties of certain kinds of animals, in Noah's day there were fewer varieties. They were absorbed into a single kind from which we later see diversity coming. And so in order for him to preserve a whole classification of animals, he only needed one pair. And then today that pair has diversified into many more subtypes, subkinds. But in his day, they're still at a higher level. But if I do the math, excluding sea creatures and plants, there are only a few hundred thousand species of animals and insects in the world. If we assume for a moment that only two species were in one kind, if I don't even account for more diversity than that, just two to one, then I only need to put a hundred thousand kinds in the ark. And if I take the average between insects and elephants and look at that size average, it only takes about 60 or 70 percent of the ark space to hold 100,000 kinds of animals, sizes averaged from biggest to smallest. That leaves you plenty of room over for food, people, food supplies, and the like. There's no problem at all with having enough room in that, in that boat for the people and for the animals that need to be there. Finally, why don't the lions eat the zebras? They all eat plants. We're still at a point prior to predator-prey relationships. That doesn't start until chapter 9. They're all plant eaters at this point. Look what Noah says to God's instructions. Thus Noah did to all that God commanded him, so he did. When people ask me, what's the most difficult verse in the Bible? This is the one I go to. God appears to Noah seven times in the course of Noah's story. Noah never speaks to God once. There's no recorded time in which Noah speaks to God in Scripture. Here's a man who heard something that I would argue is the most difficult thing I've ever seen in Scripture. I don't know of any man getting anything more difficult than Noah had to believe and to execute. And he never asks a question. And he does all that God asked him to do. I don't know how you do that. God gives me a fraction of stuff to do and I don't do it all. And this is what Noah does. Noah, to me, is a man who I cannot understand, but dearly want to. And we'll come back and look more at him next week as we come further into chapter 7. Father, help us to be like Noah. Help us first, Father, to be blameless in all our ways. Without your help, Father, I I don't know how I could do that. And Father, help us to be one who walks with you, who hears your voice, who seeks your voice, and who does as they're told. And help us, Father, when we get the instructions and we know that your will has been revealed, to follow that will, Father, and to do so without questioning and without argument and without excuses. How did a man like Noah do what he was called to do, Father? I I don't understand it even now, except I take on the authority of Scripture that he did that he heard your voice and he knew the imperative and he understood what was at risk and he set about spending a hundred years or more of his life doing something that the world itself could not understand. What did he sacrifice, Father? What did he give up? What was he unable to do that he would have preferred to do? What, What hardships did he endure because he took on your word and your instructions and obeyed? Father, I pray that beyond understanding the story and beyond appreciating its detail, I pray, Father, that we have all come away with a greater and a renewed appreciation for obedience and that you would continue to work in our hearts in that respect so that 
when we receive calls to do things, to go to Juarez or to uh, volunteer in the church or to help out in our school, our family, or in the neighbor next door, things, Father, that you bring us all the day long so that we may testify to you through our life and our works. I pray, Father, our heart would be one inclined toward obedience and not questioning, not doubt. And in that small way, Father, may we reflect what we learn in the story of Noah. Thank you, Father, for this church and for our family and friends here. And we ask, Father, you bring us back next week as always to continue. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.